You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I was watching a a video where uh, an interviewer, where he was going out on the streets and asking people what Christmas uh, means to them, and the answers were all over the map. Uh, Some people said Christmas means time with family and friends. Uh, Somebody else said Christmas means celebrating life. Uh, Predictably, somebody answered presents. Christmas is about presents. Uh, A few people mentioned something kind of vague uh, about God. What does Christmas mean to you? It's an interesting question, but it's not the best question. It's certainly not the first question that you should ask when you're considering Christmas. At Harbin's Church, we believe and teach that the whole Bible, and indeed every aspect of reality, is best understood when viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ, because ultimately everything is about Him. So, if that's true, then really the more urgent question this morning is not what does Christmas mean to you, but what did Christmas mean for Jesus Christ? What did it mean? What does it mean now? And what will it mean for Jesus? And when you discover the answer to that question, then you are better positioned to answer the other question, well, then what, what does Christmas mean for me? What is my response to Christmas? So, this morning, we're going to consider Christmas from the vantage point, not of just any ordinary man on the street. We're going to consider Christmas from the vantage point of Jesus. And I can think of a few Bible passages that do this quite as clearly and powerfully as Philippians chapter 2. So, why don't you stand with me one more time as we get ready to read God's Word. We stand at Harbin's Church in honor of the reading of God's Word as a way of reminding ourselves that this is not just any old word. These words come from the one who spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. This is the very Word of God. We're in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 5 and read on down through verse 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your holy and inerrant and inspired Word. I pray, Father, that You help us to hear the Word, that Your Spirit would illuminate the Word uh, to us so that we might better uh, uh, perceive its meaning and that You would also help us, Father, to not just be hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word, taking the Word and then letting that Word affect and move and transform our lives, Father. Help us to hear now what the Spirit has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, what does Christmas mean for Jesus? It means three things. First thing that Christmas means for Jesus is incarnation. Incarnation. 
Want to plug in our clicker back there? Incarnation. It's not working. I'm just going to wait and make you sweat. All right. Incarnation. If you were a child hearing how the Christmas story is commonly taught in children's Bibles or by many adults, you would think that Jesus wasn't a part of the story until Christmas Eve. You might even think that Jesus Christ did not exist until He was conceived inside of the womb of the Virgin Mary. But look at what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus in verse 6. It says, He was in the form of God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus merely looked like God? Does that mean that He, he seemed like God? Well, that word form is translated from, from the Greek, the, the language that Paul was writing this in. It's translated from the word morphe which speaks of the, the essential or characteristic attributes of something. So, Paul's point here is that Jesus is God in His very essence, in His very nature. Everything that makes God God, Jesus is. Now, if that's true, then the Christmas story did not begin in Bethlehem, did it? It's actually rooted in eternity past. And the Apostle John picks up on this in his gospel when he introduces us to Jesus in chapter 1. He calls Christ the Word. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's think about that. Let's break that down a little bit. So, so Jesus was around long before Bethlehem. He was before all things. In fact, He was in the beginning. But Jesus also was not alone because it says after that, and the Word was with God. But more than that, John writes, and the Word was God. And John's amazing statement touches on that great doctrine of the Trinity, the Trinity, that yes, there is one God, but this one God exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you can explain how Jesus can be God and be with God at the same time. That word with signifies relationship. Jesus was with the Father in the beginning. More than that, Jesus is also the Creator. That's why John goes on to say a few verses after this that he says this about Jesus, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So in other words, everything that was made has been made by Jesus. Now, th this refutes all kinds of uh, false teachings and theologies about Jesus, such as the notion that Jesus was merely a, a special human being, or he was, a, he was a prophet that was just really in touch with God, more than the average prophet was, or, or maybe that Jesus was some sort of, of angel. And these kind of false teachings have been around for centuries. In fact, in the fourth century, uh, the deity of Jesus was under attack by a man named Arius. Uh, Arius' te teachings are at the root of, of, of many heresies today, including uh, what, what our Jehovah's Witness uh, friends and neighbors believe uh, in regards to, to Jesus not being the eternal God. And, and Arius, in the fourth century, he was going around teaching that there was a time when the Son was not, Son, S-O-N. There was a time where Jesus did not exist. And in response to this, Christian leaders came together in what became known as the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. 
Uh, the most famous pastor at that council was a man named Athanasius, and, and you church history buffs know who, uh, who that is. He was a staunch defender of the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. But according to some stories, also present was a pastor named Nicholas. And uh, as some have told the tale, Nicholas got so upset listening to Arius, Arius spout his heresy about Jesus that, that uh, Nicholas got up and he walked over to Arius and he punched him square in the face. This is, at a, this is at a council meeting full of Christian pastors, Christian leaders. Nicholas, by the way, became na- known later on as St. Nicholas and was the inspiration behind the Santa Claus stories. But the historical St. Nick was actually a Christian pastor. And if the stories of his actions at Nicaea are accurate, then apparently jolly old St. Nick wasn't always jolly when heresy was being taught. He was actually quite dangerous. You better watch out. (laughs) And as your pastor, I would advise you to, yes, defend the deity of Jesus, but use your Bibles, not your fists. What we do know is that out of the Council of Nicaea arose this incredible creed about Jesus that's still used today that says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And so what that means is that what happened inside of Mary wasn't just a conception, it was an incarnation. Now, what is an incarnation? Uh, That word is is connected to other words that we are familiar with, especially that carn, C-A-R-N, that carn, an incarnation. We go to a restaurant and we order chile con carne. Chili con carne, a chili with, uh, with meat, with, with, with flesh. Christ, the God who from eternity past existed in spirit form, became incarnated in physical form in the womb of a teenage girl. The Apostle John puts it this way when he says in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh, became carne. And going back to Philippians 2, Paul writes in verse 6 that, though in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Christ did not feel as if He needed to use His position to His own advantage in a selfish kind of way, uh, unwilling to deny Himself the privileges and rights that were due Him as God. Think about it for a second. Consider all of the things that Jesus enjoyed in heaven before He came to earth as a man. And think about the things that He denied Himself in becoming a man. Jesus, God the Son, enjoyed complete and total and perfect worship and adoration from the host of heaven. Now, I think about that amazing vision uh, that the prophet Isaiah recounted in Isaiah chapter 6 where he catches a glimpse of the throne room of God and, and, and this glorious scene where the, where the holy angels are de- continuously declaring the praises of God. I think about all the, the beauty and all the glories of heaven. I think, about, uh, I think of God the Son living a life experientially untouched by the pain and sorrow of, of the difficulties of life in a fallen world. And I think most of all of the perfect, sweet, loving joyful fellowship that Jesus had with the Father, going all the way back into eternity past. It wasn't that Jesus didn't commune with His Father when He was uh, uh, here on earth. He most certainly did. 
But Jesus himself, on the eve of his crucifixion, he prayed this. He said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, in that moment in his prayer, was longing for a restoration of the fullness of the glorious fellowship that he enjoyed with the Father before time began. And the Apostle Paul tells us that the fullness of that glory, he denied himself of that in the incarnation. Paul says in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, The self-emptying that Paul is talking about isn't referring to Jesus ceasing to be divine. That's what some people uh, think that that means, uh, that that he emptied himself of uh, of godness. It's not true. Instead, the the, the self-emptying refers to him becoming a man, uh, becoming a man uh, voluntarily and temporarily surrendering certain rights and prerogatives that he had as God and taking on all of the weaknesses and limitations of humanity. And in that moment, the fullness of His glory and, and the fullness of His identity was veiled. As, as I, I heard someone once put it, uh, He was God incognito. Brian Chappell gave a, a helpful illustration of Jesus emptying Himself in a story told from an African missionary who lived in a part of Africa where the chief was the strongest man in the village. Uh, and as the chief, he, he wears a large headdress along with some special ceremonial robes. Well, one day, there was another man in the village who accidentally fell into a very deep well, and he broke his leg. Now, the only way that this man could be rescued was for somebody to climb down that well. Uh, there, there were little um, uh, slits uh, along the side of the well so that somebody could grab onto those handholds and, and climb down and, and climb up and, and, and hopefully climb back up with the man. And there was no one in the village that was strong enough to do this, and so they got the chief. And the chief then took off his headdress, and he laid aside his special ceremonial robes, and he climbed all the way down to the bottom, and he somehow got that injured man on him, and then he climbed all the way out of the well to safety. Now, he did what no other man could do. And this is like what Jesus has done for us. Jesus came down to rescue us, and He laid aside His heavenly glory to do so, just like that chief did with that headdress. And just like that chief did not stop being the chief just because He set aside the privileges of His position in that moment, just because He stripped Himself of those robes, He laid aside uh, uh, those robes and that headdress. In the same way, Jesus did not stop being God, even though in His incarnation, He was, uh, as it's been said, stripped of the insignia of His glory. And this incarnation was a downward step into humiliation. And that's my next point. So, Christmas means incarnation for Jesus, but it also means humiliation. Humiliation. Do we have that? We're going backwards now. I'm pushing forward, but it's going backwards. But it means humiliation. The part about Christmas that we so often sentimentalize and we get the warm fuzzies about, namely the birth of Jesus, it's actually, uh, when you think about it, it's actually something that is scandalous. Uh, Jesus Christ, God of very God, the creator of the universe, the king of the cosmos, lays aside all of the praises and all of the pleasures and all of the accolades and all of the glories of heaven to do what? To become an embryo, 
I wonder if you've ever thought about that. God as an embryo. God as a, a tiny little person in the fetal position, in the womb of His young mother. There are few things that you can think of that are more helpless and more humble than a little baby. A baby can't do anything for himself. Jesus needed to be nursed. Jesus needed to be taught how to talk. Jesus needed to be cleaned up after using the bathroom. Jesus had to cry to let his mom know that he needed something. Why? Because Jesus, though God, actually became a human being. This is important because just like there is false teaching that denies the deity of Jesus… There are false teachings that deny the humanity of Jesus. There are people who have said, well, Jesus wasn't really a human. He just seemed to be human. And so you find the Christian church throughout history having to push back against that false teaching from the other side of the spectrum as well. As early as the first century, the Gnostics were repulsed by the idea of the incarnation because they thought that flesh and blood, carne, was bad. And they thought spirit was good. And they could not imagine a holy Christ becoming flesh and blood. And so the apostle John had to make very, a very clear, very bold statement about the humanity, about the flesh and, and uh, bloodness of Jesus, the, the physicality of Jesus. And, and, and he makes a point about the necessity of believing this. He writes in 1 John chapter 4 that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So you've got to believe in both, in both the deity and the humanity of Christ. And not that he's half man and half God, but that he's 100% man and 100% God. Now, is that mind-blowing? Yes. Is it hard to understand? Yes. Is it scriptural? Yes. So then should we believe it? Absolutely. So, don't feel bad if you can't fully understand the, the union of divinity and humanity into one person. Our job is not to understand everything. Our responsibility is to receive by faith what God has revealed to us in the Scriptures. To receive the, the glorious truth that Jesus, though God, also became man. And what an incredible step down that that would have been for Jesus. We can't even understand it to leave behind the glories of heaven, to wrap himself in frail humanity, to know weakness, to know limitations, to know hunger and exhaustion. Uh, he spent an eternity past not knowing any of those, not experiencing any of those things. And in the incarnation, for the first time, he is experiencing those kinds of things. There has never been anyone, there's never been anyone who has been so high that has stooped so low. He became a man. And he became a man in the humblest of circumstances, clothed with poverty, not born in a palace, as a king should be, but born to a couple of nobodies and placed in a feeding trough for animals. Uh, the word of his birth not announced and spread abroad by mighty men, but by lowly shepherds. How strange it is that the king of the universe would come to earth in this way, that Jesus, though God, is not treated as he deserves. Jesus, though he was rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, became poor for our sakes. The other night, uh, around the supper table, I was reading Luke chapter 2 with my family, and I was amazed when it said that Jesus, as a child, was submissive to his parents, Joseph and Mary. I was just blown away by that. The king of the earth is being obedient to his subjects. 
But that's why he came, to be a servant. He served God like any other man would be required to do. He lived out the law that he himself wrote, and he served others. He, he, he uh, did this in everything from his humble profession as a carpenter, living for 30 years in obscurity in a city that didn't have the greatest reputation. Indeed, when one of his own disciples found out that he was from Nazareth, do you remember his reaction? I'm talking about Nathaniel. He said, he said are you serious, Nazareth? Can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You guys probably have cities like that, that growing through your mind, that in the United States. Can anything good, you know, come out of Cleveland? If anybody's watching my Cleveland, I'm just, sorry about that. Cleveland rocks. Some of you got that. Um, he, uh, he laid down the carpenter's tools, uh, and he became a traveling preacher with no place to lay his head. And he poured himself out in service to others, healing the sick and touching lepers and teaching about the kingdom of God. This was his whole life. Indeed, Jesus said that he came not to be served. Now, you see, that's what, what the people would have expected of Jesus if he was the king that he claimed to be, that he would come with an expectation that everybody would be serving him. But Jesus said, that's not my mission. It's not to be served. It is to serve. And we see this really exemplified in John 13, don't we? On the final evening before he was crucified, and he was having that last supper with his disciples, and Jesus takes the form of a servant, and he lays aside his outer garment. He, he's stripped down, and he's wearing nothing but a, a loincloth. He actually looks like how the slaves looked like back then. He, he, and it's really a picture of what he did in the incarnation, where, where he stripped himself of the insignia of his glory to come to earth and serve. And he sets that outer garment aside, and he gets down on his knees, and he washes the, the, the muddy, grimy, disgusting feet of his disciples, his disciples who should have been tripping over themselves to do that to Jesus, and yet none of them would. They were all too proud to stoop down low in that way. In fact, they were arguing that evening about who was the greatest among them. Well, the one who is on his knees with a towel in his hands is the greatest. And Jesus does what should have been done to him. He should have been served. But Jesus gets a bowl of water and does the thing that none of them wants to do. And one of those pair of feet that he is washing belongs to Judas, the man who would betray him, the man that he knows will betray him. All of Jesus' acts of humble service, however, were just shadowy previews of the main way that He would serve both God and us. And so, Paul says in verse 8, going back to Philippians 2, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Why? Because, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That my friends, is the reason for the season. He came to pay a ransom. Now, in the time of Jesus, ransom was money paid to purchase the freedom of someone who was in slavery, someone who was in captivity. And the Bible describes all of humanity in captivity, held captive by our sins. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. And Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. 
But it's worse than that because Jesus also says that sinners will go away into eternal punishment. That's hell. If you are uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell and you love Jesus, know that Jesus talked about this all the time, warned people about this all the time. It's nothing to be trifled with. It is serious. So humanity is in slavery to sin, and in this life being held on death row, waiting for our execution in the life to come, where there will be suffering and sorrow for eternity. That's hell. That's the predicament of man. And without rescue, that's everyone's destiny. And you may be thinking, well, I, I didn't come to a Christmas service to hear, some, hear, hear this kind of, kind of talk, but, but, but friends, this is the point of Christmas, why He came. Jesus came to pay the ransom, the price for our sin and our guilt. Paul says He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, we should never think about Christmas apart from the cross. Because this was the whole reason why Jesus came. Every step that Jesus took in his life, from those first stumbling steps as a toddler in the the home of Joseph and Mary, to his final stumbling steps uh, up a hill at Golgotha, every step that he took was taking him closer and closer and closer to the cross. If the birth of Christ was a humiliating scandal, then guess what? The death of Christ, even more so. The cross was an obscenity in first century Rome. It was a horror. It was something that people just would not speak about. There was a revulsion that people felt about the cross. Uh, It was reserved for the most heinous of criminals and the lowliest of slaves. In fact, crucifixion became known as the slave's punishment. And Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us, took on the form of a servant. Servant. It's the word doulos in Greek. It means slave. I think it, they should just translate it as slave, but we don't like that word. That, that's a, that, that word's kind of an obscenity in our culture today. But he came and took the form of a slave. That's what he came to be. And, and his enemies took Jesus, and he was beaten, and he was whipped, and he was tortured, and he was mocked, and he was treated as subhuman. Prophet Isaiah looking ahead in time, predicting this event, said in Isaiah 52, 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When Jesus' enemies were through with him, he was a bloody pulp. He was a mass of disfigured flesh. He was a horror to even look at. You don't find this on Hallmark Christmas cards. And yet, without the cross, Christmas is completely useless. It is totally and utterly vain. Jesus did not come as a a babe in Bethlehem to be adored, though He should be adored. That's not why He came. He came to be nailed to a piece of wood and hung like a piece of meat. And He paid our ransom with His very life. He hung on the cross in the place of guilty sinners. We were the guilty ones. We owed God a debt because of our sin, but, but Jesus stepped in and paid the fine by taking upon Himself the sin of sinners and having those sins punished in Him, which is why beyond the physical agony and torment of the cross, there was a spiritual torment that Jesus was experiencing as He hung there. It was the torments of hell. 
He, the innocent one, was for the first time experiencing guilt and shame when the sin of men was transferred to him. He who once heard the endless courses of praise from the angels in heaven now suffered heaven's silence. He who once basked in the light of heaven now endured the blackness of hell. And he who once enjoyed the sweetest fellowship with God the Father in eternity past and who enjoyed the Father's approval while on earth now scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the scream of hell. It is, as R.C. Sproul said, the scream of the damned. And it should have been you screaming that. It should have been me screaming that. But he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When you think baby in a manger, think that, because that's why He came, to bear the sin of sinners in His body on the cross, so that whoever would trust in this man would be saved from their sins, because those sins have already been paid for in full by Christ. And as Jesus received our sins, His perfect righteousness was transferred to us. That, that, that perfect service, that perfect obedience to God that He had always rendered His whole life that perfect service is credited to the account of every sinner who is united to Jesus by faith. So then when, Jesus, when God looks at the believer now, he sees, God sees legally, perfect service and no guilt. And this is why Jesus, who entered the world in Bethlehem with a baby's cry, also left the world with a cry. Not a baby's cry and not a whimpering empathetic cry but with a war cry, because he shouted out, it is finished, because the cross did not end in defeat, but victory, because everything he had had to do to save the world was done. Uh, He did it. He won. The ransom was paid, and because he won, death was not the end of the story, which is why Christmas for Jesus not only means incarnation or humiliation, but it also means exaltation exaltation. The reason everybody dies is because of sin. Death is the curse of sin, but because Jesus died not for His own sins, but for the sins of others, because Jesus was a substitute for the guilty and He was not actually guilty, because Jesus was a totally innocent man, death could not hold Him, which is why He could emerge from the tomb three days later. And not many days after that, He ascended back to heaven into glory. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is Jesus' vindication. It is the proof that God the Father approves of Jesus, that He is not a sinner, sees Him as innocent, and sees His payment as fully sufficient. Now, when we think about that biblical principle that says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, if that's true, which it is, then what happens to the man who has humbled himself to the very lowest point? Who goes as low as you can go? Super humiliation. Super humiliation then must mean 
super exaltation, right? If that's true, that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Super humiliation leads to super exaltation. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, that, that word in the Greek is literally super exalted. I didn't make that up. So, Paul says, Therefore, God has super exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, what is the name? What, what is the name that is bestowed upon him? There, there's some debate about this. Some say it's the name Jesus, and that could be right because Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The only thing is, is that he was already called Jesus. God had bestowed that name to him when he was still an embryo inside of Mary, and Jesus was the name that everybody recognized him by. I tend to think that the name God bestows on Jesus in this super-exaltation is the name Lord. That's the name that shows up in verse 11. You see that there? It says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That word Lord in the Greek is kyrios. And kyrios is the word that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's kyrios is used in the Septuagint to stand for the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh in the Hebrew. I am kyrios in the Septuagint. That is my name. Kent Hughes writes that giving Jesus the name Lord... Yahweh is the ultimate of all honors. Yahweh is the name that trumps all other titles, the awesome covenant name of the God of Israel, the name that is above every name. This does not mean that Jesus wasn't Yahweh, that He wasn't Lord during His ministry on earth. We've already seen that Jesus Christ is God, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Instead, as Hughes puts it, the terms super-exalted and the name that is above every name must be as referring to a position of recognizable superiority over all creation, and that Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand makes His superiority more fully evident to the creation over which He rules. So, Jesus' super-exaltation and surpassing new name was a gain in official glory, not in essential glory, but official, recognizable glory. And and certainly, that's the point of verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is curious. So you've got here this global, even cosmic recognition and universal confession that Jesus, not that Jesus is named Jesus, but that Jesus is indeed Lord. That's the universal recognition and confession. Think about it. That's the ultimate super exaltation, isn't it? Uh, There is no exaltation higher than for the universe to declare to Jesus, you are Yahweh. You are the maker and heaven maker of heaven and earth, you are Kyrios, you are the one and only God. It doesn't get any more exalted than that. And I think we find support for this 
in that Paul here is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah 45, which is an amazing chapter about God's power and sovereignty. Three times in Isaiah 45, he reveals his name. He says, I am Yahweh. I am Kyrios. And he says, there is no other. And then he says, I am God. There is no other Savior besides me. And right after that, Yahweh extends an amazing, amazing invitation to the world. Look at this. He says, turn to me and be saved. This is Yahweh talking. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Check it out. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. Because that's how Paul describes the super exaltation of Jesus in verses, uh, verses 10 through 12 of Philippians chapter 2, when he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. Paul takes Isaiah 45, a chapter explicitly about Yahweh, and he applies it to Jesus. And Paul says that there is a day coming when this man who was born in humble circumstances, who had no majesty that we should look at him, who had no beauty that we should desire him. This man, who was despised and rejected, who was mocked and scorned and cursed and spat upon, this man who was beaten and battered and nailed to a tree, a day is coming, ladies and gentlemen and brothers and sisters, when the universe will see and acknowledge and confess that this man, Jesus of Galilee, this man, Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, Jesus... This man, the son of Joseph and Mary, this man is in reality God himself. And a day is coming when everyone will acknowledge it. Those Pharisees and Pontius Pilate who together sent Jesus to his execution will bend the knee and will confess. Emperor Tiberius Caesar, who while Jesus hung on the cross thought he was ruler of the world, will bend the knee. Mohammed will bend the knee. Adolf Hitler will bend the knee. Every atheist who has ever lived, much to their dismay, will bend the knee. Everyone in this room, or those of you watching this stream, will bend the knee. Donald Trump and Barack Obama will bow down low. The most powerful angels of heaven will bow, and the devil himself will finally bend that knee and say the words that he hates but knows is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he shall reign forevermore. That's where this is all headed, my friends. That is the trajectory of Christmas. That's the point of Christmas, salvation for his people, the final triumph over his enemies, and the universal recognition of his lordship to the terror and dismay of his foes, but to the joy and wonder of his friends. 
So for Jesus, Christmas means incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation. But what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? And I'd like just to spend a few moments closing by considering application. We've had incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, now application. How should we respond to Christmas? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote this incredible theology about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, not for mere academic reasons. Yes, this is great high Christology, but theology is never meant to be taught apart from application. And the whole point of Paul teaching us about the high, lofty position of Jesus and the humble descent and service of Jesus in the incarnation and the subsequent super-exaltation of Jesus, all of that was meant by Paul to teach us something about humility. Go back up a few verses to verse 3, and you will see the backdrop of this chapter. Paul writes in verse 3, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Sometimes people in churches strive for importance and prominence. We want to be recognized. We want to be in the spotlights. There can even be jealousy and power struggles in churches. Uh, There can be a sinful jockeying for position. And on top of that, and this is the big one, we want to be served. One of the most common reasons people quit church is because they feel like their needs aren't getting met. Now, let me say that certainly there can be legitimate reasons to leave a church. And we certainly should be concerned if a church is not helping us grow in the Lord. But with that said, too often, too often, we point the finger at others in the church. Too often, we are too self-focused And we are way more passionate about how people are not serving us in the way that we think that they should serve us than we are about being a servant to others. And we tend to want to treat others according to what we think they deserve. So if they have burned me, if they have offended me, then I'm done with them. And I'll serve and love those who are easier to serve, and, and, and I'll love those who are easier to love, and, and I'll, I'll show affection to those whom I deem are more worthy of it. And we do that because often we are more interested in being treated as special and important than we are in treating others as special and important, even more important than ourselves. And yet, Christian brother and Christian sister, I want you to look around this room right now. Go ahead, look around. I know it's weird. Go ahead, just look around at some of the people around you. Yeah. Now, all those people around you, in front of you and behind you. Paul says, Paul says, listen, I know that was a little goofy. and Some of you are kind of laughing at that, but don't miss the point. Those people that you were looking at, Paul says, treat them as more important than you. Treat them as more important than yourself. In verse 4, Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And that is a hard thing for me to do because I have an inclination to be self-centered. And probably you're right there with me and you can relate to me. So how do we do it? How can we grow in our other-centeredness? Paul tells you how in verse 5. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul says the key is to look to Christ. Whenever you are tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought, whenever you are tempted to have more of an interest in how people should be serving you than on how you should be serving other people, consider the service of Christ to you. Are you more important than Christ? Do you deserve to be served by Christ based on how you've treated Jesus in your own life? What if Jesus in heaven said, you know what, I'm more important than those people, and they aren't serving me, they're rebelling against me, they're not treating me right, why should I serve them? And of course, Jesus is more important than us. And of course, we indeed were not serving Jesus, we were mocking Him in our sin. And yet, nevertheless, the Lord, the God of heaven, the maker of the stars, stooped down low, as low as one can go, not just to wash feet, but stooping even lower and being willing to be crucified for your sins, willing to suffer hell itself to serve you. He did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And as Christians, the ones who are supposed to follow in the way of Christ, should that not be the grand mission of our lives as well, not to be served by others, but to serve others. Is is that the grand mission in your life? Is it the grand mission in my life? And we can expect in our humble service and stooping low for others that the Lord will in His way and in His time lift us up. Jesus said whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And of course, Jesus lived that out, right? As we witness His extreme humility followed by His extreme uh, super exaltation, God will see and will bless your loving, self-humbling service to others. And finally, if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, there's an application here for you as well. Because while Jesus said on the one hand, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, he also said whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And if you're not a Christian, having not submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know right now that you're living a life of self-focus and self-exaltation. You're not living for Jesus as Lord because you want to be Lord. Just admit it. That's what's going on. I know because I was once there in my life. And you want to control your own life and and you deem your way to be better than Jesus. I want to urge you, my friend, to turn from your sins and submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. The reason Jesus came to earth, born as a baby in Bethlehem, was to rescue sinners just like you. He did not treat himself as more important, even though he was but instead humbled himself and gave his life as a ransom. And if you do not humble yourself before Jesus now, joyfully acknowledging him and following him as Lord and God, Paul warns you that a day will come where you will bend the knee before him later, along with all the other enemies of God, and you will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, not in joy and in gladness, but with terror and fear before your final and eternal judgment. But why go that way when Jesus generously offers you a much, much better way? Don't spurn his service. Humble yourself before the Lord and experience for the first time the whole point of Christmas. Receive Christ and trust in his humble, indeed humiliating work on the cross and experience his forgiveness and his friendship and his peace now 
and for eternity.